For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. Now, I don't have any comments today, so remember, if you have a comment about today's podcast, don't hesitate to join in on the conversations. I know I have heard from a few people, though, that are a little uh, frustrated that I'm not coming up with new things all the time, and then uh, uh, I've got a few people calling me about JBL saying, when are you going to finish Moby Dick? And one of the things you have to understand is, this isn't all we do around here, is radio. With me in the studio today is my faithful producer, Dan. Hello. Hey, Dan. Good to see you. But uh, but Dan and I have a lot of other work we have to do. We're coming into finals. We got to produce tests. We got to correct tests. We got to read papers. Oh, I'm be, I'll be reading like 38 to 40 papers here pretty soon, and essays and things like that. So you have to be patient and just. Just read. Read ahead. That's always really good. Now, what I want to do for, for today's program, maybe I ought to talk about the last program. It's up there. Is, is we, uh, we talked about how the fool chided Lear and how he put Goneril into her place. That's really a, a good program. You could listen to that more than one time. Now, for today's program, what I want to do is I want to give you a lecture similar to what I would prepare for my college sophomore literature students. But I want you to know that I prepared this lecture especially for you. I've never given it at the college. So you're getting something fresh, and I think something that will really, really help you be able to not only understand the play better, but also to be able to tie it with what's happening in world events right now. Now, uh, to do this, I'm going to read some uh, from books that I really like. One I'll be reading from the introduction to the play, the Pelican series. And there's another book I'll talk to you about in a minute. Then I'm also going to read a few sections of the play. Now, 
I had promised that I would do a special program on Kent. And one of the things you also have to understand that uh, the person that's going to help me is in England, and I haven't provided him all the lines yet. And so as soon as I get that done and I get all the lines back, we'll be able to, to work on that program as well. That program I'm really looking forward to. And uh, remember, Kent was banished by Lear, and he was told to never return to England. Yet he loves Lear so much and is willing to sacrifice so much for him that he returns to England and uh, helps Lear in a unique way. And I think it's for a very honorable purpose. So that that will be coming. Now, what I want to do is I want to open this lecture by asking you a question. Why did Shakespeare write the play King Lear? And there's a lot of controversy over the history. A lot of people think it's just a big myth about King Lear. Uh, it is supposed to be history. And uh, people think it's all mythical. They almost like King Arthur was mythical. But there are other scholars that today that realize that it actually is history. And it goes back to the 8th century. I mean, uh, BCE, I guess you could say it. And uh, Lear would have lived at the same time as the prophet Elijah. So you're going back pretty far. But whether it's mythical or whether it's fantasy or whether it is, the thing is the story and the way Shakespeare presents it is a big lesson. There's a big lesson to it all. And it's really a lesson that, that everybody in government today should really be listening to anyway. So that's the big question. Why did Shakespeare write the play King Lear? Now, I think when we get through this, you'll see that this play is completely applicable to today's social, health, and political news. And it, it really is, I think, just a wonderful, wonderful play. Now, one of the first books I want to talk to you about is it's titled The uh, the Year of Lear. And the book was written by uh, author James Sapiro. Now, he, he's a really great author. Uh, he's written a lot about Shakespeare. This book is called The Year of Lear. The subtitle is Shakespeare in 1606. Now, I think I may have talked to you about this. Maybe I haven't, but but that is the year that Shakespeare wrote the play King Lear. That was in 1606. And I'm going to read to you just a few sections from his introduction. He says, in 1606, for the first time since his writing began to be published in 1593, not even a poem or a residue of an earlier play appeared in print. That could in part be explained by his diminished output, but it was also the result of a decision by Shakespeare or his playing company to hold back from publishing his more recent work. Why, we don't know. And so there are some things in history with Shakespeare that we can't really figure out, but we do know that he did write this play in 1606. Uh, it was around the same time that he wrote Hamlet, and I think he wrote Hamlet in 1604, and he also wrote Antony and Cleopatra. And if you look at all these plays together, they have a lot to do with, well, rule and authority and what's happening in society. So Shakespeare was really focused on these things in his mind. And again, uh, we see Shakespeare as a great educator. And Mr. Joel Fleury has written articles about that he believed God has inspired uh, Shakespeare to teach England how to be you know, a royal nation and how to, how to be an empire. So there's a lot here. But we also have to realize that you know, the time of uh, Shakespeare, especially around 1606, it was not a healthy time in England. There was plagues everywhere. And in fact, the theaters 
were shut down because people were so afraid of the plague. There was also, you know, in 1603, Elizabeth I had died, and uh, there was a new king now in England, King James the the First of England. He was King James the Sixth of Scotland. So there was an upheaval even in the government. But you could say, I guess, there's speculation that that in the year 1606, Shakespeare would have been 42 years old. And most people did not live past their middle 40s at that time. And it was because there were so many plagues. And uh, you know, his parents had lived to an older age, but that was years before you know the plagues and all that began. Um, he also, at this time, he became uh, less active in acting. And he used to be, you could find him on the stage every day of the year. But um, essentially, he was not spending as much time acting as well. So there are a lot of things that uh, I think Shapiro brings out that are good. But he goes on to say, and I'm, I'm going to skip ahead in his introduction. He says, the year 1606 would turn out to be a good one for Shakespeare and an awful one for England. <laughs> That's pretty poignant. He says, that was no coincidence. Shakespeare, so gifted at understanding what preoccupied and troubled his audiences, was likely to have begun his career during the increasingly fractured years of Elizabeth's decline. So we know that uh, as Elizabeth began to age and began become closer to death, there was a lot of controversy in England. Who is going to replace her? She'd never been married. She never you know, gave birth to a child. Who is going to rule England? And if you really look at England's history, this was a problem. This is a problem over and over again. You can go all the way back to the Richards. You can go back to the Edwards. You know, when an older king died, who was going to replace him? Who was going to be qualified? And uh, the people in England loved their kings, but they loved the right king, the king that took care of them. This was what was going on. He goes on to say, Shakespeare, so gifted at understanding what preoccupied and troubled his audiences, was lucky to have begun his career during the increasingly fractured years of Elizabeth's decline. But his early work had developed especially deeply into the political and religious cracks that were exposed as a century of Tudor rule neared its end. There's a lot of controversy even about the Tudors. I mean, the Lancastrians, they hate the Tudors. And, you know, there's other people who hate the Tudors. But essentially, they ruled well. Uh, he goes on to say, but it would take some time for him to speak with the same acuity about the cultural fault lines emerging under the new and unfamiliar reign of the King of Scots. So you see, by 1606, James VI became James I of England in 1603. So this is like three years later. So uh, he ruled differently. <laughs> He's Scottish. But uh, if you really want to know the truth, I mean, uh, if you don't understand this, when Queen Elizabeth died, James VI of Scotland took over and the reason why he could take over is he was a cousin of Elizabeth's, and he assumed the throne as James I. Now, both Elizabeth and James I were descendants of the first Tudor monarch, Henry VII. And at the time of Henry VII, that's when the War of the Roses ended. Henry VII married uh, one of the daughters of Edward IV, and it, it brought the two roses together, and things were really a lot more satisfied then. So Elizabeth was the granddaughter of uh, Henry VII, and James was his great-great-grandson. And so they both had rights to the throne of England. 
the thing that we have to understand about this is, is James' ascendance to the throne of England was the beginning of the Stuart dynasty. Now, that means if the Stuarts take over, what is the first thing they want to do? They want to get rid of everything Tudor. That's what happens. So a lot of people see Shakespeare as Elizabethan, but when James took over, he became Jacobean. James had a lot of his own ideas on how to rule, but he also had a lot of ideas on how to write plays. So we get a little different uh, shadow of play play going when James takes over. Uh, let me just say, uh, um, he liked his own playwriting. Uh, he was really into masks. And I don't know if you really know what a mask is, but mask is actually, it's all done by nobles. You got princes and princesses. It's a lot of singing. There's dancing. There's also uh, like poetry in it. And uh, they all dress up with masks and they put on their best attire. And women were actually allowed to be on stage and act. In the public, there was no women allowed to be on stage. But with the royalty, hey, we could do what we want. <laughs> and so James was really into his masks. He had one big one that he wanted Shakespeare to write and Shakespeare refused. He wouldn't do it. He didn't want to write a mask. He, he's got to write a play. But uh, anyway, he was different. King James was different. Not that he was a bad ruler, but he was different. Now, in the year 1606, England was in turmoil over the rise of plagues. There was a lot of plagues rising. There was rebellion against the government, and then there were revolts in the religious factions. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that because, again, you can just... I want you to get the view of when Shakespeare was writing this, what was happening around him. So as I said, Shakespeare turned 42 in 1606 in the era which people lived on the average until their mid-40s. Shakespeare knew he couldn't count on too many years left to write, and in such a plague-ridden times, who could? It says though his, This is from Shapiro, by the way. Though his parents had lived unusually long lives, only one of his four sisters survived childhood, and only one of his three brothers made it to his 40s. So as a shareholder in a profitable playing company and part owner of the Globe Theater, Shakespeare had amassed a small fortune. Most of it invested in real estate, including a leasehold interest in land on the outskirts of Stratford-upon-Avon. And so he was a pretty wealthy guy. And uh, essentially what Shapiro is saying here is he had more than enough money to comfortably retire his wife, Anne, had recently turned 50, so she was she was really outliving, you know, the mid-40s thing. She lived with her two unmarried daughters because um, Shakespeare, actually, because he was a playwright and then so much involved in the theater, he stayed in, in London for most of the, I, I would think probably most of the week, maybe went home on weekends. It says, uh, but in 1606, Shakespeare wasn't ready to retire or rest on his past achievements. He still had more to say and hadn't tired of the grueling writing regimen that had defined his life since mid-twenties. Not long after witnessing the mask of James, he was actually at the mask, even though he didn't write it. And, uh, you know, he would have had a very important seat at the mask. He said that uh, he really didn't like them at all. But uh, it says that uh, not long after witnessing the mask, Shakespeare finished King Lear which he had been working on through the autumn. Before the year was out, he would also write two more plays, Macbeth and Anthony and Cleopatra. He had his own ideas about union, marital and political, 
and about much else that was ignored or suppressed in the glittering display at the court of the evening when they did the mask. So he's thinking, this is silly stuff. There's all these things happening out there in in London, and uh, why don't we write something that's going to educate people? <laughs> he enjoyed the night, I guess, but he did not write masks, and he, he would not do it. But he did write the play King Lear, and uh, I think I can show you now why it was happening. Uh, this was also happening. It says, uh, this book is about what Shakespeare wrote in 1606 and what was taking place at the fraught time. For the two are so closely intertwined that it is difficult to grasp the meaning of one without the other. Here's what was going on. Though it would have been impossible to tell from reading a, a contemporary account of that evening's mask, exactly two months earlier, most of those who had gathered to see it were almost killed in what we would now call a terrorist attack and one that had been prevented at the last moment. A group of disaffected Catholic gentry had plotted to blow up Parliament, kill the king and the country's entire political leadership, then roll back the Protestant Reformation begun under Henry VIII. So uh, does that sound familiar <laughs> to anything that's going on in this world? I mean, uh, look at what the present administration has done to America. They've destroyed it. President Trump, he just gave a speech and he said if he gets to be back into office, which we believe he will be, he's going to make sure that he fixes everything that the Democrats have, have destroyed. He says thousands of other Londoners would have died in the explosion and ensuing fires, remembered today as the 5th of November or the gunpowder plot, exposed in late 1605, reverberated powerfully through the ensuing winter and spring, and when the captured plotters were tortured, tried, and then public executed, it's less well known after that that the plot was thwarted, there was a short-lived armed uprising in Warwickshire. The plot in its aftermath in the Midlands touched close to the home for Shakespeare, and some of his neighbors were implicated, for his hometown abutted the safe houses where the prisoners met, weapons for the intended uprising were stored, and a supply of religious items for the hoped for restoration of Catholicism were hidden. It is interesting what was going. So they have plagues. We've had COVID-19. You got a new government. You got people against the new government. You got people wanting to blow each other up. Here we know under Elizabeth, Shakespeare spent a lot of his time talking about kings and uh, the role of kings. And, and we, we have a special class here uh, at Armstrong College. Just It's called Shakespeare's English Kings. And we go through the plays and the history. King Lear is one of the plays that we do in our more in our literature class, not necessarily in that English King's class. But he says, because nothing happened after that fateful day, only the plotters would suffer and die. The meaning of the 5th of November turned on competing narratives, especially on how well the authorities could succeed in getting the nation to imagine the tragic death of a monarch. Shakespeare, who understood such plotting as well as anyone, had been inviting audiences to imagine the deaths of kings and queens for his entire career. Who would do so again this year? Shakespeare also grasped the dramatic potential of popular reaction to the plot. A maelstrom of fear, horror, or a desire for revenge, all in too brief sense of national unity and a struggle to understand where such evil came from. The two profoundly shaped the tragedies he was now 
writing. So he's taking what's happening around him, and he's really incorporating it into King Lear. And that's what we have to see is what's going on. It is really, I think, a really fascinating book. And uh, if you're if you're really a truly a Shakespeare aficionado, I think you'd want to buy this book. And remember, it is uh, called The Year of Lear, and it's by uh, James Shapiro. And again, you can add that to your to your book list. Hopefully, everybody out there listening to JBL and also listening to Shakespeare are building their libraries. Okay, uh, one one more paragraph here. It says, uh, and I think this is this is really important, especially what we've seen now with Tucker Carlson. And uh, uh, I know a lot of people are very upset that he's been wasn't even told he was going to be fired. And I I know he came out with a two minute explanation, and there's going to be more coming out, I'm sure. But uh, he's got more power than Fox News does now, anyway. <laughs> and uh, I haven't tweeted to him. I'm sorry. I had to. T- I'll just tell you. I said, you know, why don't you do one of these two-minute shows every night, and then we can all go to bed and sleep well, you know, because we know we've been told the truth. <laughs> so anyway, here's what Shapiro says. I want to finish. This will finish with Shapiro for right now. It says, at many points during 1606, English men and women must have felt overwhelmed. In an age which there were as yet no newspapers, let alone radio, movies, television, or an Internet, the theater was the one place where rich and poor could congregate and see enacted through old or made-up stories a refracted image of their own desires and anxieties. So this is a really, I mean, a really good backup to what Mr. Joel Fleury has written, that uh, Shakespeare was educating the nation. And here is a an author of the world saying essentially the same thing. So the stories that Shakespeare told us here enabled his playing company to rise to this challenge. There's a paradox then at the heart of a book about so remarkably a year in Shakespeare's creative life. Even as the playwright himself recedes from view, the ways in which his writing was able to give in Hamlet's words the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. So uh, Shakespeare was educating the people, and in some ways I think being very supportive of James I because, um, again, people were really, really, really nervous about what was going on. All right. I do want to read to you now a little bit from the Pelican introduction to to King Lear because I know probably a lot of you are like students. You don't read the introductions to anything. And so I've just learned that from the students. If you've read it, good for you. If you haven't read it, yeah, you probably need to read it. Anyway, uh, but this is from the very beginning and it really gives us insight into what Shakespeare was really going into. So again, this is this is from the Pelican Shakespeare on King Lear. It says, Shakespeare's overwhelming study of the tragedy of the old age and the politics of the family has held the stage continuously since its first performance in 1606. So he's talking about King Lear, and he's calling it, this uh, author in this uh, Pelican introduction, he's saying it's an overwhelming study of the tragedy of old age and the politics of the family. He's also done that with Hamlet. Um, I don't want to talk much about Hamlet. He also did it with Romeo and Juliet. Those are internal family problems that spill out into society. He goes on to say, he says, um, that King Lear has rivaled Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet as the most frequently produced and intensely studied of Shakespeare's tragedies. 
its analysis of the disintegration of the closest family ties, the resentment and violence underlying the most intimate relationships has seemed to speak to peculiarly modern concerns. So here at the very beginning of the play, the introduction to it, the author is saying, King Lear applies to today. You know, I, I think we should be able to see it more and more. Said in Shakespeare's own time, it spoke well as to much larger political issues, the responsibility of kingship, the continuity of rule, the unity of the commonwealth, and perhaps most troubling of all, the profound tenuousness of patriarchal social order. And if you talk about patriarchs today, it's like a dirty word in terms of the feminist movement. We don't want patriarchs. We don't want a patriarchal society. We want a feminist society. And, uh, you know, in other words, the position of the father has just been destroyed. Even Mr. Stephen Flurry, hopefully uh, you're also listening to the Trumpet Daily, but he's been talking recently so much about the failure of family and, and how, you know, the families are falling apart and, and a lot of the fathers are responsible for that. And look what happens. The government falls. The country fails. It's just important that we have nuclear family. And people don't want that. Uh, the transgender movement is trying to destroy family. We just have to face the reality of these things. And it's not, we're not necessarily just criticizing everybody, but, but they're devastating society. They're changing society. And it's not what really needs to happen. And it shouldn't be happening. And of course, we all know, and even people in the world know, that there's a demonic influence to all of this. We know God is a family, and the human family is patterned right after God's family. It says, uh, it goes on to say, uh, let me just break into the middle of the sentence. It said, and perhaps most troubling of all, the profound tenuousness of a patriarchal social order of the assumption that the model for the commonwealth was the family and that on all levels of society, father was king. To me, when I read this and have been studying this, you know, this is a smart man writing about this. He's a, you know, a Shakespeare aficionado, and he's saying that Shakespeare wrote this play because the family is key to all levels of society. And when we get into King Lear, I'll talk to you a little bit more about this as we go through this lecture. The point is, Lear is not only king, he's also a father. And if you look at Gloucester, Gloucester was a powerful Lord, and he's also a father. That's all being tied together here. And in our families, uh, the father should be king. The father should be a loving father, but there has to be also family government. And of course, uh, we know what the feminists want. They do not want a father in charge of the family. They want to be in charge, and they want to be in charge of society. He goes on to say, he says, uh, Lear's tragedy is from beginning to end a family matter. Now, even I was surprised at this, that here you have really, I think, a, probably a very smart intellectual, and yet, yet they're seeing what Shakespeare is talking about. It was a family matter. It is to point that when James I came to the English throne in 1603, there was a fully constituted royal family at the center of English society for the first time since the death of Henry VIII. And so what this author is saying in the introduction 
is that, that Shakespeare knew what was going on in the society and that the king, under the Tudors, the family had been, you know, central. The Tudor family was ruling the nation. The nation was at rest. Everything was calm. But now that James came in, and again, he was Scottish. He brought in his own ideas. Uh, I think there was some tension between probably the Presbyterians and the, the Anglican Church. But also, one of the, the main things that James wanted to do is he wanted to unite Scotland and England into the United Kingdom. And that was a problem then, and it's still a problem today. It's still going on. You know, the Scots are always trying to get out of it. <laughs> so, uh, But if you really know your Bible, you really know that England and the United States and uh, England and Scotland, that we're all part of the same family. We know that the USA is Manasseh, and we know that England is Ephraim, and of course the Scots fit into all of that as well. Shakespeare could see, you know, what was happening. You know, English society was really nervous about having a different king from a different country with different ideas. Now, uh, King James wasn't all that bad, and he he has written several books that are very interesting. And uh, it's interesting that uh, the James I believed he was from the line of David. He believed he was like King Solomon. He had no intention of destroying England. He wanted to build it up, but he wanted to build it up like the Scots. <laughs> and you got to be careful with that. So it says, uh, on December 26, 1606, was at the Whitehall Palace before King James through the play. Seems to have written in the previous year, the court performance may well have been the first since the plague. So it was actually performed for King James, King Lear, on December 26, 1606. Um, the, all the public theaters have been closed down, but as uh, is the case, the royalty, they had their own theater and I've actually been in the palace for Henry VIII, and I've seen the theater. I was actually, I've been in the theater at that palace, and uh, it's absolutely phenomenal, the theater. The stage is high above everybody, so you actually look up for the actors, not equal or down. It says, uh, you know, that he goes on to talk about the opening night of this play. It says, but the opening scene hardly mirrors the Jacobean court, Though the story of there comes from the chronicles of ancient Britain, the action belongs more to the world of legend than history. Lear's court initially seemed like a fairy tale world where momentous decisions are determined by trifles. The opening moments of the play invite us not to take the action seriously. The declarations of love Lear demands from his three daughters are to be performances, not set pieces. Now, I have a little bit of a disagreement with, with this author. One of the things you have to realize, he said it doesn't have much to do with the Jacobean court. I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't is King James' son was the Duke of Albany at this time. And who is one of the main characters in the play is the Duke of Albany. Of Albany, excuse me. I think there is you know, a little bit of jabbing at King James here. And I don't think Shakespeare would be afraid to do that because he was really famous. But also, we have to remember that under Elizabeth, his acting company was the Queen's Men, and then it wasn't long 
until after James was king that he made him the king's men. And so he was being totally supported by King James. All right. The thing he goes on to say, uh, he's talking about this first scene in uh, Lear. And uh, maybe instead of reading about it now, I'll just read a few more quotes, and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about it. But just remember, we, we want to focus on that. The first scene we want to focus on with Kent and with um, Gloucester and his illegitimate son. And then we'll go to the next scene with Goneril and Regan and the absolute farce. And it really is a farce. So in some ways, this uh, writer is right. You know, Lear asking his daughters to tell him how much they love him and then he's going to give them the better property. All that was a farce because the king had already planned it all out anyway. I mean, we know that from the play. All right, here's another little thing uh, that he says there. And again, I'm going to come back to read some of this where it really makes sense in the play. He said, we could look at the scene as, as the play opens another way and say that the three sisters are being asked to sign a loyalty oath Goneril and Reagan agree to it because they are aware that the oath is really meaningless, and Cordelia refuses for exactly the same reason, because she too is aware that the oath is meaningless. In other words, they all knew the game. <laughs> they knew that the land was already determined. I'm going to read some of this again as we go back, so I don't want to be careful I don't read it all now. It is interesting, and, and again, James has only been king three years, and his son is Duke of, Duke of Albany, so they can see some shifting going on with the king, and it's making everybody nervous. All right. So let's do this now. I've read you I've read you from the introduction, the Pelican introduction. The one thing I want to say is, is this is this is for me now. I'm not reading it from anywhere. But the point is in the play, and just to emphasize the fact that this play is about family and about destruction in family and and it's it's also about what happens when when family breaks down, then it's going to be breakdown in the government, breakdown in the country. The play, King Lear, is the only Shakespeare play. It is the only one he's written. It's the only play that has two subplots revolving around family. And, and this is really important to understand. Now, the first family that shows up is obviously King Lear's family, and it's very much in the uh, very first act. But the actual, the first family where you see the problem is actually at the very beginning of Act 1, Scene 1, and it's Gloucester is talking to Kent. This is before King Lear even comes on the stage. Here's a look at family. This is one of the two subplots. The thing is, you can see where the, where the family has broken down, and Gloucester is really responsible for most of it. So if we look at it, King Lear is both king and father. Uh, Gloucester is both a powerful lord and a father. So if we if you look at this before King Lear even comes on, and you could go to the to Act One, Scene One, and it starts with Kent. Kent says, uh, "I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall." Now what you see with this very first line is that there's a problem in the politics, and that that's what Kent is bringing out. He says, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. So the politics are that Kent sees is, it seems like, well, the, the king likes the Duke of Albany more than he likes the Duke of Cornwall. So if you're James and you're sitting and you're hearing this for the first time, <laughs> you're going to get the point, well, 
why did you put your son as Duke of Albany? Do you see what I mean? It's just, it just seems that way to me. And, and the politics there. And Gloucester said, he goes on to say, it did always seem to us, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the Duke he values most. So these two men know that the kingdom's already divided. They know it. They know what's going on. And they said, now it's all muddy. Uh, well, we don't know who he uh, likes first. It appears not which of the dukes he values most for equalities are so weighed that curiosity neither can make choice of either's moiety. And uh, in other words, he said, it's, it's also muddled now. Uh, and if you look at, at moiety, that means succession. So it's going to be hard to figure out who's going to succeed who. That's what's really going on. So, so immediately, students, and I'm calling you my students today. I hope you appreciate that. But uh, essentially, students, you know, what is going on? Well, essentially, Lear is not thinking right. And then notice, and Ken says, is this, is this your son, my lord? So he says, his breeding, sir, had been at my charge. I have so often blushed to acknowledge him that now I am braised to do it. I cannot conceive you, he says. He said, Sir, this young fellow's mother could, whereupon she grew round-wombed and had indeed a son, uh, sir, a son for her cradle, ere she had a husband for her bed. Do you smell a fault? And essentially what Gloucester said is, I had this boy because of an affair, and his mother, I didn't marry her. I'm not marrying her. You know, and basically he said she's a whore. And uh, he said, do you smell a fault? And so I think he's saying, okay, do you... Is that okay? And Kent says, I cannot wish the fault undone. The issue of it is being so proper. So he's saying, well, here, this son is really handsome. He's really, you know, he's got a good brain. He's, he's really well built. And Gloucester says, but I have a son, sir, by order of law, some year elder than this, who is yet no dear in my account, though this knave came saucily into the world before he was sent for, and yet was his mother fair, there was good sport at his making, and the horsome must be acknowledged. Do you know this noble gentleman, Edmund? <laughs> so how would you feel if you were Edmund at this point? You know, it's like, Dad, what are you doing? And uh, he said, no, I don't know who, who he is. And he says, my Lord of Kent, remember him after as an honorable friend. And Edmund says, my services to your lordship. And the Kent says, I must love you and see to know you better. And then Edmund says, Sir, I shall study deserving. And Gloucester says, He has been out nine years, in a way he shall again. So he hasn't even been living with his dad for nine years. And he's going to be sent away again. He's going to go back. How do you think, everybody out there listening, how do you think Edmund is going to take this? I mean, he's not going to be happy with it. And why would your father say these things? And he said, Oh, it was a great sport, you know, but then he came saucily into the world. So obviously, that is going to stir up trouble between him and his legitimate brother. So he even calls him a whore son. <laughs> so this is a family problem. And, uh, and of course, then, then the king comes in. And uh, here we have Lear is also both king and father. And uh, what we need to discuss here is the breakdown in Lear's family. If we really wanted to, to look at this, let's go to, you can go to page 13 in your playbook. And uh, essentially what's going on is Lear is wanting his daughters to tell him how much they love him 
and then he's going to supposedly uh, give them the best peace of, of England. But as we go through this, we still know that it's already been decided, and it's, it's really just a big farce. And I think the two older, I think all three daughters know what's going on. So let's go back. We can go back to, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but if you go back to page four, uh, Lear shows up, and it's, it's all big show. He just says, this is page four, he says, in line 36, meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Uh, he says, in other words, this has all been supposedly a secret, but yet Kent and Gloucester know a lot about it. He says, give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths while we unburdened crawl towards death. So essentially here, King Lear is older. He's tired of being king. I mean, he says, eh, just going to give it up. I'm going to decide. And basically it's decided between the two son-in-laws, Cornwall and Albany, who's going to get to be king. And he's going to, he's saying, look, um, he wants to do this. He says, um, and burden crawl toward death. Our son of Cornwall and you are no less loving son of Albany. We have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers that future strife may be prevented now. <laughs> so he's going to split up the kingdom, hopefully to prevent strife. And essentially what he's doing, he's creating strife. So, uh, you know, he not only splits Goneril and Regan from Cordelia, he splits Goneril and Regan from each other. And he also divides the two son-in-laws because eventually there's going to be civil war. And I think all of us in this country are a little uh, fearful that that's, uh, that's going to be a reality for us as well. So he goes on basically, and you can, you can read a lot of this yourself. He said, which of you, and this is on be around line 50, it'd be page five. It says, which of you shall we say doth love us most that we our largest bounty may extend? Where nature doth with merit challenge, Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. Now, that's an absolute lie, what he's saying there, because he's already divided it up, and he already is planning to give the best peace to his youngest daughter, who he loves the most. So you see, Goneril, they're playing along. It's a farce. Sir, I love you more than work can wield the matter. Dearer than eyesight, space and liberty, beyond that what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life, with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as a child ever loved or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, beyond all matter of so much I love you. It's like she loves him so much she can hardly say it. And then Cordelia aside says, <laughs> what shall Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. And then Lear says, of all these bounds, even from this line to this, that's going to be your piece now. And immediately, if the acting is great, and the, the Globe does a great job with this, immediately Albany and Goneril are absolutely angry that they got this piece. They're not a bit happy. That's, it doesn't please them at all. Then there says, of all these bounds from this... Oh, I won't read that again. Then Reagan says, uh, Dear Reagan, the wife of Cornwall. Now, Cornwall... By the way, he's also a, a duke or a lord, and he's absolutely sinister. I mean, he's wickedly cunning and also just terrible. He's, he has no trouble torturing anybody. She says, I am made of that same metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love. Only she comes too short that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys, which the most precious square sense possesses 
and find I am alone felicitate in your highness love. And Cordelia wants to vomit right here. She says, then poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. <laughs> so she says, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. And then, of course, Lear turns to, to Cordelia and says, uh, okay, Cordelia, okay, tell me, tell me what's going on. You're being suited by the, the King of France and the Duke of Burgundy. And he says, so tell me. And she says, nothing, my lord. Lord says, nothing. Cordelia says, nothing. Lear says, nothing will come of nothing. Now, that's a famous line. And I bet people didn't know that came from Shakespeare. But that's where it came. Uh, it came right from this play. He says, speak again. Cordelia says, unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more, no less. How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortunes. She says, good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return your duties back as our right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? So she goes on to say, look, you know, if I'm going to be married, I'll love you half as much, but I'm going to love my husband the other half. And uh, Lear doesn't like that. And he said, okay, he just said, okay, Cordelia, if that's what it's going to be, then let truth be your dower. <laughs> she gets nothing. <laughs> and then there's a whole other little interlude there where the Duke of Burgundy says, well, if you have no money, I'm not going to marry you. And then the King of France says, your character is worth more than a dowry, so I do want to marry you. So so she becomes Queen of England. Anyway, then you have Kent, and, and I'm not going to get too much into this, but he uh, essentially Lear banishes his daughter and then Kent says, good, my liege. And he says, peace, Kent. Come not between the dragon and his wrath. So here, uh, if you look at it, even Lear isn't being honest with himself because he said he's tired of being king. But now now that Kent, who is uh, you know, one of his assistants also in the government, says, Lear, this is stupid. Don't make this decision. Lear comes back and says, hey, shut up, Kent. You can't do this. So Lear still wants power. He's giving up the right to be king, but he still uh, he still wants the power. And, and that is a big issue in the play is that Lear still wants to have the name king and he still wants to have the power, but he doesn't want to have the responsibilities. That is not good. That's not good government. So that's the big problem with Lear's family is Cordelia has been his favorite and uh, Goneril and Regan hate Cordelia anyway. So what I want to do is just uh, I want to read a little bit more Let's go in your playbook to page 14 and 15. This is where the king has uh, decided that he definitely wants Cordelia to be his queen. So what the king says at the bottom of page 13, he says uh, to uh, Cordelia, says, bid farewell to your sisters. And so Cordelia does. She says, the jewels of our father with washed eyes, Cordelia leaves you. I know you what you are. And so Cordelia knows how criminal they are. He says, and like a sister and most loath to call your faults as they are named, love well our father. To your professed bosoms I commit him, but alas, stood I within his grace. I would prefer him to a better place, so farewell to you both. And then Regan, the, the second daughter, says, prescribe not to us our duty. <laughs> she, they, they hate her. Don't you tell us what to do. And then Goneril says, let your study be content, your lord, who hath received you at fortune's alms, you have obedience, scan it, and well are worth the want you have wanted. And so essentially, Goneril said, you, 
how do you get to be queen? I don't understand this. Cordelia says, time shall unfold what plighted cunning hides. Who covers faults at last with shame derides? Well, may you prosper. And so Cordelia leaves. And then the two sisters get together, and it's just ugly. Goneril says to to Reagan, Sister, it's not little I have to say of what most nearly appertains to us both. I think our father will hence tonight. So and part of the deal was that uh, Lyra's going to give them all their piece of property, and they, they were going to be in charge of it. But he was going to stay with them, and he was going to bring a 100 knights with him every time he came to stay. And, of course, they're saying, oh, no, we don't want this. And Reagan says, that's most certain with you and next month with us. And Goneril says, you shall see how full of changes his age is. The observation we have made of it hath not been little. He always loved our sister most, and with what poor judgment he has now cast her off appears too grossly. So they even recognize and they see that what Lear is doing is ridiculous. Even though they hate their sister, they... uh they still see that there's a lot of inequity in all of this. So essentially what you have is Lear has just made the problem even worse. And the same as what Gloucester did with uh, his son, Edmund. Let's look at um, page 15. And this is, this is Edmund, you know, after all the things that uh, Gloucester said to him, about him to Kent, uh, Edmund has this soliloquy, where he is totally dissatisfied with society's attitudes towards bastards or illegitimates. And uh, you can see that he is just incensed by what took place with Kent. He says there, thou, this is uh, page 15, we'll start with line 3, Act 1, Scene 2. Thou nature art my goddess, so to thy law my services are bound. And so he's saying, well, look, the gods have to to, to take care of this. And this was pre-Christian Britain, by the way, so... So they were into nature worship and pagan worship. He says, Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the, the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother. Why bastard? Why for base? When my dimensions are as compact, my mind is as generous and my shape is true. And so he says, look, uh, what's wrong with the law of this country that I can't, I can't share the fortune with my brother? He's going to inherit everything. And uh, it really, really ticks him off. And so what he does is he lays a plot to make it look like his brother wants to take over the estate and all the money and kill his father. So he's really, uh, in some ways, just demonic in what he wants to do. Here's what the introduction of the play says. It says, but Edmund, talking about Edmund, Edmund is more than a villain. He is in his way the great realist of the play, invoking nature as his goddess in a powerful soliloquy at the opening. He defies conventional morality in favor of an ethic of pure self-interest. Shakespeare's contemporaries would have seen him as a Machiavellian figure and to that extent a conventional stage villain. But what is probably most striking about him for us is the way he analyzes and overturns the idea of nature so central to the largest ethical claims of the play and the idea of nature as a benign and humane force. So you can see that even this introduction, we know that Edmund becomes a villain in the play. Now, 
here's what they have to say about Goneril and Regan. And remember now, they hate their father and they hate their sister. And uh, they actually hate their husbands too, as we learned during the play. It says, it is in Goneril and Regan who are the play's conventional villains. So they end up, they're villains as well. Edmund is generally a subversive figure. He loses in the end, certainly, but so do Lear and Cordelia. And what he introduces into the play is a serious question about the basis of ethical behavior. So I think it's uh, it's interesting that when this guy looks at um, Goneril and Regan, what he says is they follow the laws of the jungle. <laughs> so, so as we go through the play, we're going to see how evil they are and what they really do. And so, again, why did Shakespeare write this play? And Shakespeare, I think, is trying to tell us and trying to help us see that the family is all important. doesn't matter if you're a king. doesn't matter if you're a queen. It's is that family has to set an example for the nation. And then every family has to make sure that it's, it's a nuclear family and the dad is viewed as a king. That's why Shakespeare wrote it. That's why it's an important play. And that's why I think we should be reading it on the radio. All right. Well, that is all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, I will begin discussing Kent starting in Act 1, Scene 4. We're going to have my friend uh, Craig from England reading his lines. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, and we'll also be moving into Act 2 at that same time. Now, you can buy a good used copy of Shakespeare's plays at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find copies in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment at my Twitter page, and that's Shakespeare's Royal Education. So thanks for joining me next time as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.